0: So let's go ahead and get started. I appreciate you coming. And uh, we we do have the Zoom study handout for week six in the chat section. So if you click the little chat feature, the little chat box at the bottom of your screen, uh, that'll click open to the side. And... Uh, You can access the handout that way. Um, I put my email address there if you uh, would like to email me or have a question uh, tonight or tomorrow. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and open with prayer. And I'm going to pray the collect for this week. So let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, send forth your son to lead home his bride, the church that with all the company of the redeemed, we may finally enter into his eternal wedding feast through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so last week I ran out of time, and so I included a portion of last week's handout in this week's handout. I started to talk a little bit about the slowness of God, and uh, I had in the on so if you jump to the back of the the last page of the handout you'll see the lord's prayer and if you go to the third page at the bottom there's a section on the slowness of God and it it connects with the scripture that we're going to take a look at today tonight the The slowness of God is something in the art of witness that's that's very important, because when you think about the American culture and our context, historically, America is heavily influenced by deism, and deism has another spin of it called moral therapeutic deism. And a lot of people in the country that would identify as Christians uh, are have a lot of moral therapeutic deist tendencies. And so just as a refresher, deism is this idea that there is a God and he created the world and how he created it is up for grabs, but he created the world, then he steps back and he watches, but he doesn't interact and the people are left to make their best run of it and the, and the the whole goal in moral in, in deism or moral moral therapeutic deism is to be good people and to help a society be a good society a productive society a loving society so there are positive aspects of deism when you get to Moral therapeutic deism, piety and worship uh, is just optional. It's one of those things that you can uh, you can do if you feel like you need to, but it's not required and it's not necessary. Moral therapeutic deism is the idea that it, it's almost an economic sort of transaction that you love your neighbor and your neighbor loves you and You help each other to make a better place to live. And moral therapeutic deism is you go to church if you need it, uh, if you need a little uptick, a little spiritual uptick. And what happens with that is since it all becomes optional, people sort of forget God and God's just up there and you live a good life. And then when you die, you go up and you meet the old good old nice grandpa God and he says, well, you did pretty well, you know, we'll let you in. And and so, you know, the idea is everybody tries their best. Everybody gets to go to heaven and life is good and worship's there if you need it. But worship in a moral therapeutic deist sort of perspective is simply for the person and for to address their needs and their felt needs and, and uh, maybe a little moral teaching, that kind of thing. Lutheranism is different Christianity is is different in this regard and we have a sense of mystery and we have the sacraments and the incarnation of Christ the the incarnation of the word and so all of this is very important now when we talk to people outside the church they may be moral therapeutic deists if they believe in god but what has happened in the course of time in america is They've kept, the American culture has kept some of the strands of moral therapeutic deism, but then removed God completely. And so the individual is left to make his or her run, best run, and do well. And if a person is successful and things are going good and their life is good and they're meeting their goals then uh, life is easy. But the art of witness becomes very important when people face difficulty and struggle, when they suffer. And there is not much of an answer out in the culture, the secular culture, in terms of suffering. Human suffering and existential suffering is a, a huge problem. And And so when you think about the slowness of God, this is an opportunity in the art of witness to draw people into a discussion about what happens when you suffer and why do you need a God? Why do you need the divine? Um, Why is it important that there is a God outside of time that breaks into your world and addresses your pain? And Christians struggle with this too, as we all know, because uh, suffering is hard. In the Another thing that we deal with in the Western world is we tend to think linearly, like we try to get from point A to point B. And so if I have a problem, I want to fix it. So I just need to get to point B. And then the goal becomes... What steps do I need to take to get to point B? And so we think about let's say I'm suffering in some way, so I'm at point A, then I need to know how do I worship, how do I pray, how do I address God to get to B, to get to the healing, to get to the end of the suffering. And so this comes out in a way. Even with people outside of the church, people that tend not to believe in God may grapple with the idea that there is a God when they suffer, but they still think about it in this deist thread or um or or maybe this linear western kind of thinking where like, okay, if there's a God, here I am at point A, I need to uh go to him and appease him in some way so that he'll he'll save me out of this trouble part of the problem that we face then or that people out in the world face is they try to pray they try to deal with it maybe they'll go to church but then maybe the suffering doesn't end right away maybe they still suffer maybe they still struggle maybe there isn't an uh, evident answer to prayer and then they will conclude there must not be a God. And um and I wrestled with those kinds of things myself in my teens and then early 20s. So when we think about the slowness of God, and, and this will get to our, our study for tonight, on page at the bottom of page three, I have some scripture that addresses this. So 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then Habakkuk 2, verse 3 is a really good passage. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And Then we have Romans 5, verse 6, which is also really good. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So at the right time. And so, you know, we can think about this in terms of our own spirituality and our own faith that, you know, if you look at the Lord's Prayer itself, you have the petitions. And so on the last page, you have this, uh, what is called a chiastic structure of the Lord's Prayer because you have the introduction, our Father who art in heaven, and then you have the conclusion for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But if you look then at the petitions themselves, there's seven petitions, and a chiastic structure, and I've tried to do this on the handout, a chiastic structure goes like this, and what it does is usually the the first verse will connect with the last verse in some way and then this the second verse will connect with the second to the last verse but they all draw in towards the middle verse and so the point is actually in the middle verse of the whole structure and so if you look at the lord's prayer in the way that i have it printed out for us you have the fourth petition as the center petition and so all of these petitions in the Lord's Prayer draw us to give us this day our daily bread. And often when we look at this, we think of, um, and Luther's right in this, he he talks in, in the catechism about how it addresses all of our needs. And this can be very helpful in the art of witness when we talk about God and uh, having our needs met. But this is also really important in the church because uh this Lord's prayer in the Greek is really striking. And it literally the fourth petition literally says, give us today the bread for our coming essence, and the Greek word is epiousion. And so the idea is that this bread that I that I ask for is something for the essence of who I am, the core of who I am. And what this does is it addresses everything in my life, if things are peaceful and joyful, or if I'm struggling and suffering. And early Christians tended not to think in a linear fashion, like we Western people think. Um, They saw their, their being or their habitus as Always going back to the place where they would find God in the word and the sacraments. They would go to the altar, they would go to the Eucharist, they would go into the place where they would pray and they would light their candle and they would gaze upon the cross or the crucifix. And this is where they would exist and live as Jesus would feed them in the Eucharist and as as they lived in the midst of their struggles and in their sufferings. And this is so important to think this way because there's a couple of Greek concepts uh, that, that St. Paul uses in terms of struggling and suffering. Um, for example, there's there are two Greek words, phlipsis and stenochorea Okay. And these two words, each, means a little similarly, uh, but they they have a little different force to them or sense to them. But they both have this idea of distress or struggle. But what they actually mean is narrowing, confining. And so I don't know if you, you probably remember like Star Wars and remember Star Wars, you remember that scene where, um, I think it was like Han Solo, Luke, and Princess Leia. They were in that trash compactor. Do you remember this? And the trash compactor is going like this, and you know, then all of a sudden, this snake starts weaving around in the in the sewage, and they finally stop the the trash compactor. But you know, that trash compactor, as it was sort of narrowing in to crush them, it it sort of like singles you out and. And this is the devil's tool in suffering. Like whenever, whenever you're given some kind of suffering, it narrows and it basically compresses and restricts and, and put, puts us into a corner. And what happens, and this is exactly what the devil tries to do, is he singles it out so that all we can see is the thing that's causing us suffering, and he's singly singling us out and away from Jesus. And what this does is, is the tendency is to lead us to despair. And if we despair, then we could fall away from faith and belief and trust in God. And the beautiful thing about our Lord and, and the Lord's Prayer, for example, is he leads us out of these things and second corinthians 12 is beautiful in this regard it's it's the section in second corinthians 12 where uh saint paul talks about the thorn in his flesh he says i've got this thorn in, in my flesh a messenger of satan uh that's buffeting me that's that's boxing me like this that's what the buffet means in greek and he asks the lord three times to take it away. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, right? Namely, your weakness, Paul. And so then Paul says um, this amazing thing that he boasts all the more in his weaknesses in order that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So this is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And in the Greek when he says that the power of Christ may rest upon me, he's using temple language. The, the Greek word is episkenao. And the idea is that God's presence comes over and rests and blesses. And so in the art of witness, this is a very powerful image because people are making their best go at it in the world. They say, I don't need God. I'm a self-made person. I work hard. I love people. I do charity work. I try to raise my kids. I work hard in my job. I try to get ahead, but then something happens. They lose somebody that they love. They get sick. Um, Maybe they lose their job or they have financial trouble or maybe the world is just going crazy and they can't handle it anymore and what's the answer well without god their philosophy of life is just flat and so the art of witness or or protreptics is an opportunity to listen of course a lot of listening predominantly listening but then also knowing knowing the world and its philosophy well enough to be able to talk about their philosophy of life and where it leads them so for example protreptics existed before clement of alexandria protreptics existed with plato and aristotle and so aristotle had discussion with protagoras and Basically, what Aristotle tried to do was he would listen to Protagoras and he would try, he would see that, hey, we're two individuals and and Aristotle's goal was to create consensus. And so eventually, Aristotle would become a ventriloquist for Protagoras' theories And show that Aristotle's philosophy was more genuine. Okay, so here we are talking about Greek philosophy, and yet this is a Bible study. Well, the beautiful thing about these things, and maybe I hope to be able to do this uh, maybe in later November or December, but where did Aristotle get these ideas of using this kind of method? Well, in the Old Testament, we see Moses and the prophets use similar tactics, but they use language for Baal, uh, the Baal god, the the false god, and they would use that language for Baal, but then they would bring it back around and show Yahweh as the one doing the, the working and the acting using Baal's language to show that God precedes all of this, and that he is a creator and sustainer of the cosmos and everything. And so, yeah, in, you can do this, you can, We we know the world because we live in it every day. So we know how people think around us. So we listen for an opportunity to help them in love, to draw them away from the thing that they can't answer, the thing they can't solve and lead them to Christ. And so back to St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 then, here's the beautiful thing about the Christian existence is when Paul speaks in this way in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10, he says, I will boast all the more in my infirmities or my weaknesses in order that the power of Christ may tabernacle over me therefore i am well pleased or or you know i'm pleased in my sicknesses or weaknesses in my hebris my my struggles my my turmoils and in persecutions and then he says in and i i can't remember how this reads in in english but uh, in persecutions in hardships maybe but this word for hardships actually is the word stenochoria which means in this narrowing or compressing. Um, and the goal then is that Paul is saying, I might still suffer. And it sounds like I'm going to continue to suffer with this thorn in my flesh, whatever it is. But the power of Christ addresses it differently than what the devil intends. So the devil wants me to be confined and focus on the thing that's killing me so that I keep my eyes off of Jesus to lead me to despair, to lead me to unbelief. But Jesus is, he tabernacles with us in our sufferings. So Jesus is close to us when we suffer and when we struggle. So the divine has an answer, but it may not be point a to point b i pray now i get healed but when i go to eucharist when i light my candle and i look upon the icon of christ hanging over the altar jesus is addressing my soul in the midst of my suffering as he loves me and feeds me and he's teaching me different things and he's surprising me and the devil and that's what happens in our text for tonight. So take a look, if you will, at St. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. And as you're going there, I'm going to open up my Greek text. And uh, I see a, a Comment in the com- in the chat section. Suffering makes one feel they are alone. That's exactly right, and that's an important point uh, that's brought up because part of this narrowing is that we we the devil wants us to suffer alone, away from holy community, and yet we see even in Second Corinthians twelve with Paul and his suffering that Jesus establishes community. With Paul in his struggles. And so, what should one do? What ought we do uh, when we face hardship, but we go to the place where heaven and earth converge, where the divine comes? And it's a surprising response and a surprising answer. And this is precisely something that brings hope to people outside the church who have not known. Uh, the divine realities breaking into the world so we take a look at uh, saint luke chapter eight verses 26 through 39 and i'll just tell the story it's a beautiful story what happens in this is uh jesus and the disciples go to the region of the gadarenes and it's gadara um gadara was uh The political center of the region uh, is Gentile territory. And so it's thought, this is not easy information to find, but I I, I did some digging around and it looks to be the case that uh, in Gadara, it was likely a place where they had temples for Zeus. And uh, evidently, I did not know this, but evidently, Uh, sacrifices to Zeus involved pigs and so Jesus steps onto the shore he comes into the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes depending on your translation it's opposite Galilee he goes into this this Hellenistic region and he goes to save one person and protreptics would say here is here's the difference between Jesus and the world the world might save a big group of people or maybe favorable to a sizable group but to one not so much not worth our time but not so with Christ and so he comes onto the shore and then immediately there he meets a man with with many demons and in this text, he uh, gets the question from the from the demon-possessed man, uh, you know what are you what have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Have you come to destroy us?" And so Jesus, of course, what he does is, in Luke's account, right away, he commands the unclean spirits to depart. And what they ask is they ask that they could be uh, that they could go into the pigs, so you have this herdsman with all these pigs, and so the suggestion here is that perhaps these pigs are pigs that are grazing but will eventually be used uh, for the sacrifice of Zeus. And Jesus asks them, what is your name? And they say Legion. And the interesting thing about Legion is a Legion in the Roman military would have 6,000 foot soldiers in addition to Calvary. So this guy was chocked full of demons and evil spirits. And he is the end product of what, uh, where he lives, um, his circumstances in life, perhaps his choices because of the life that he lives, but it's really bad. And it's so bad that the townspeople didn't know what to do with him. So the best that they can do is make sure that he's bound and shackled and kept in in the in the in the graveyard and so symbolically he is at this point an icon of evil he is a product of the devil's work of this narrowing and confining and separating and what happens In real time by him being removed and put into the graveyard by himself is the very thing that the devil tries to do. And so many people in our world are left alone, isolated, removed, cast away, marginalized, and left unfixable and all of these things lead to despair and and this is where the gospels come in this is where an account like this is a great thing to talk about and i use this is one of the texts that i often use with with young people that are inquiring in the faith or maybe they've just got some questions and some interest um but they're outside the church and i'll i'll walk them through this story and do just what i'm doing with you where i'll i'll become a ventriloquist For the culture outside, what would the culture outside say to a person like this? Well, he's caused his own problems. He has got himself into this position. He gets what he deserves. There's no hope for him. He's done. We just leave him alone. We can't fix him. And Jesus has a different answer. So in the midst of despair, in the midst of the world's despair, Christ comes right into the midst of it for one, one person. And so the text goes on and the story goes on. And and so Jesus casts this legion of demons into the pigs and they go rushing down just in an absolute mad rush over the cliff and right into the. To the lake right into the sea and the symbolism is is rich because if you and you could do this maybe when you have a little chance in the next week go back and read the first part of chapter eight or or if nothing else read what precedes this healing of the demon-possessed man because it's Jesus calming a storm so they're on the lake there is a storm it's the elements are frightening Um, the sea itself is frightening the sea seems uncontrollable and there's Jesus on the boat I think it was on the boat he says let's see here yeah, they sailed, he fell asleep, windstorm comes. Yeah. So the so he gets up on the on goes to the deck and he commands the wind and the waves and the sea to be still. And so in this in this case, what happens is, and I have this uh somewhere on my handout, that the question is asked right before. The healing of the demon possessed man, the disciples ask the question, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Well, in our text tonight, the demons answer the disciples' question, which is so interesting, right? So the, the disciples ask the question, and the demons say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And I think in one of the other accounts, they say, I, we know who you are, the Holy one of God. So, you know, the, the, the evangelists use these two accounts to sort of work together. And this is, um, in a sense, I kind of think it's a protreptic device in a way where, uh, you know the evangelist is taking the the mouths of the demons to say this is Jesus and so you you know you use you use what you see out in the world and you bring it back to Christ and um restore the holiness to where it belongs with Jesus and so in this account what happens then is the pigs go rushing off into the lake The lake is the abyss and it symbolizes death and eternal death. And all of this goes, if you look at the text that precedes this with Jesus calming the storm, it's that story, that account of Jesus calming the storm is very reminiscent of Jonah in in the, the boat and then being cast into the sea and then, you know, the story of jonah is a resurrection a death and resurrection story itself and you see what the sea does with jonah but then the lord brings him out and brings him to life and so the sea has this character symbolically it's a place of death it's it's like hell it's 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 full of evil and so the demons in the pigs who, which pigs would likely be the ones that would be used for the sacrifices to Zeus, all go down. And there's Jesus. And not just Jesus, but the man. And the herdsmen that see this, they go back to their townspeople And they're telling people, you won't believe what just happened. You know that crazy guy that we don't know what to do with back there in the graveyard? You won't believe this. There's a guy there, and he did this. And by the way, we lost 2,000 pigs over this. And so you can just imagine the region and the buzz and the frustration and the curiosity and they, they go to see. And what do they find when they get there? But they find Jesus sitting and teaching. They find the demon-possessed man sitting at his feet, clothed, and in his right mind. And this is really now I need to look at this again um, in the in the text, and let me see, let me see what it says here. See what the word is. Ah, uh, so the so I have this in the in our handout. So the word, and this is this, by the way, is on page three of the handout. This, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in sound mind. And the Greek word I have, I have here, uh, sophronismu. And this is a word that is used a few times in the New Testament for the holy life. It's um, used by Paul when he talks to uh, Timothy, when he writes to Timothy and Titus on how they should uh, go about their ministries. And so there's this sense of wisdom and soundness. So what you see, what the people see then, goes from an icon of evil to an icon of baptism, uh, an icon of the catechumenate an icon of the faithful sitting around the altar, listening to the holy teaching of Christ. And the the whole picture itself, where he's sitting at the feet of Jesus is the picture of a rabbi to a disciple, teacher to student. He's no longer naked. He's not crazed out of his mind. He's clothed. wise he's listening he's learning and it's it's the very image of baptism right where we put on the white robe of Christ's righteousness in our baptism and we become a disciple and we sit at the feet of Christ and we learn and we listen as he teaches us the holy life and forgiveness and mercy and how do the people respond well you know it's it's not surprising if you think about if you if you talk to people about the faith and you have a hard go at it and you're passionate and you love them and you you want to share the faith with them and and so often maybe they'll shake their heads or say, "Ah, I don't believe you you know you I can see your hearts in it, but I don't believe you." Or maybe they'll get mad and walk away. Um, In this case, it's a shocking kind of a thing that they see the evidence of what Jesus can do. They knew what the guy looked like and what he was like before. And now they see him in a completely different light. What do they do? Do they say, hey, Jesus, over here. We need some help over here. I've got my sisters over here and she's sick and boy, we could really use your help. But no. They beg him to leave. And this is this is one of those things where um holy mystery and the approaching of the divine Uh, seems too good to be true. And it's hard for people to grasp. And so often there may be a rejection or a pushing away. And what we see then, of course, is he does, he leaves. But the man who is clothed and in his right mind, he begs him that, Perhaps he could stay with jesus and uh, and go along, and Jesus says, "Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you and so he he 's in this region that is purely pagan, and he's sent out almost as a as a missionary to be an icon. Of the love of Christ. And it. It is notable. I think that. The change that he goes through. Would be noticed by. The people that knew him. And. So it is by. And this is the beautiful thing. Is about your life. And and our our lives in Christ. Is. When Jesus does his good work of loving, forgiving, shaping, and changing us, and giving us the Holy Spirit, by virtue of the love and work of Christ, it will be evident. And so we're freed up. We don't have to be um, troubled with, are we doing enough? Or have we gotten from point A to point B? But the holy, the love of Christ tabernacles in our lives because Christ is pleased to do it and it flows out. And so we go back to where the Lord feeds us and, and, and loves us. We are drawn back into holy community ourselves, whether life is peaceful and joyful or whether we're feeling this constraint and Jesus has a different way for us. And that way Will be seen uh, by others, and and that love will emanate as a sweet fragrance into the lives of other people, into the lives of others, and so we that's what we see with with this man, and you know you think about the slowness of God, and that man's condition didn't happen overnight, but it was um, perhaps a lifetime without God and a lifetime without struggle. But we see the love of the Lord that he would go into a region away from the Holy Land. He would go into a a region that had other practices and he would save one. He would come to save the lost. And so the art of witness is that we live and abide in Christ's love and we look out and we know what the world is like and we see the lives of others outside in our neighborhood and we love and we listen and we show them the icon of Christ's love as we see in this demon-possessed man who is healed and made holy as he rests in Christ. So we'll end there for today. Uh, I'll I'll hang around for a moment for a little bit if anybody has any questions or comments. But uh, always, I thank you for the opportunity to do this. I mean, it's just such a joy to spend the time uh, with you and uh, to share these wonderful, wonderful scriptures together. Blessings to all of you this night.